Church, on this Easter Sunday, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the gospel according to John chapter 11. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As today I read in your hearing John chapter 11, verses 17 to 44. John chapter 11, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. May God add the richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Friend, let me ask you, what do you do when Jesus is four days late? How do you handle life when Jesus doesn't show up to fix up? The problem has left you messed up inside. Earlier in John chapter 11, we are told that the man named Lazarus was sick. 
Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. These three siblings were close friends to Jesus. These three siblings lived in the village called Bethany, located about two miles east of the holy city of Jerusalem. I can well imagine that whenever Jesus went to the capital city of Jerusalem, he always stopped off in Bethany to fellowship with these friends. The Bible says that the sisters sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. I don't know how they got word to Jesus. Maybe they sent a messenger, perhaps a letter. Maybe they shot him an email or a tweet. Maybe they posted something on his Facebook page or his Instagram account. Regardless, they got word to Jesus that his BFF Lazarus was sick and this was no LOL matter. The Bible says that Jesus stayed where he was for two more days. Now intuitively, you know this could be problematic. For you have known individuals who have been sick and instead of getting better, They've grown worse and they've died. You've got a holy hunch that this could happen to our friend Lazarus. You're not the only one to come to this conclusion. Even the disciples questioned Jesus on his actions. They said, Jesus, don't you think we need to go on to Bethany? But Jesus said to them, our friend Lazarus is asleep. I will go there and wake him up. The disciples who are always portrayed as not the sharpest tools in the shed, always a couple of fries short of a happy meal. They said, well, if he's asleep, he can wake up on his own. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm going there to raise him from the dead. My friends, this morning, I just want you to remember that the God who delays is omniscient. Just because Jesus may be a few days late on our calendar does not mean that he somehow doesn't have jurisdiction over your crisis. Our God who delays is always on time. He is always omniscient. Jesus knows the future as certainly as he knows the past. Jesus knows everything equally and exhaustively well. Jesus made his way to the village gate of Bethany, When Martha got word that Jesus had finally arrived after Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, she went to the entrance of the village to meet him. It was Martha who was gripped with grief, tears streaming down her face. She said, Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. And then regaining her composure, she says, yet even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus looked at his dear friend and he said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Thinking that he was just saying what every rabbi is supposed to say at a time like this. She said, yes, I know he will rise again on that great last day of resurrection. And Jesus locked eyes with Martha And he dramatically said, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of seven I am statements found in the Gospel of John. 
earlier, Jesus had said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. Here in our passage, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Later, he will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And ultimately, he will say, I am the vine. On seven occasions, Jesus lays claim to his divinity. He speaks messianic metaphors. And every time, he claims that he is God. Jesus is not claiming to be a creation of God or another God or a lesser God. By now you know that that phrase, I am, is divine rhetoric. It is the very self-proclaimed name of God. It's the name that God spoke in Exodus chapter 3 when he addressed that servant named Moses, telling him to go down to Pharaoh and say, let God's people go. Moses asked the question, what is your name? And God responded, I am. I am the God who always was and is and will be. On seven occasions, that number of completion and totality, it is Jesus who says, I am. He's not mixing his words. He's not confused. He never had an identity crisis. He never had to go and find himself. No, Jesus is clearly and emphatically and dramatically declaring, I am God. Oh, in our passage, he tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection is not just some eschatological event that will take place at the end of time. Resurrection is a person. And life is not some philosophical concept of how to navigate our existence on planet Earth. No, life is a person. To know Jesus is to know resurrection. To know Jesus is to know life. To not know Jesus personally is to have no hope of resurrection. It's to have no chance of eternal life. That resurrection and life is only bound and found in the person of Jesus the Christ. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you believe this? Martha said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Friends, have you ever noticed that every time Jesus bumps into death in the Gospels, death dies? Death cannot keep the same space as the Lord of the living. Whenever Jesus bumps into death, death dies. On one occasion, Jesus went to the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and that synagogue ruler was grieving because his darling daughter was dead. Jesus went into the room, and he said to that dead corpse, Talithikaum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately, that girl sprang to her feet. She began to walk around the room. Jairus and Mrs. Jairus were dumbfounded and spellbound. Oh, but on that day, Jesus declared, I am the resurrection and the life. On another occasion, Jesus entered the village called Nain. He bumped into a funeral procession. And on that day, the holy rabbi touched the coffin and the funeral procession stopped. You bet your bottom dollar it stopped. Because according to the Jewish rules and regulations, Jesus had just contaminated himself, declaring himself unclean, for the holy rabbi had touched death. And with everybody watching every move that Jesus makes, Jesus said to that little dead boy, son, get up. And the little boy sat up in the casket and began to have a conversation with Jesus. Jesus scooped him up out of that wooden box, turned and gave him 
to his grieving mother. The crowd went crazy because by the actions of Jesus, he is portraying that he is resurrection and life. He asked Martha in our story, do you believe this? And it's Martha who says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. This is a pivotal story. I would go so far as to call it a hinge story. What I mean by that is that there are 10 chapters before this story. There are 10 chapters after this story. This story is in the middle of John's gospel. It is the hinge upon which everything else swivels. At the heart of this hinge story is this declaration, this testimony, this confession that's found on the lips of Martha. Martha says, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Now John writes this in such a way that the word believe is in perfect tense in the Greek language. We don't have anything like that in our English vocabulary and in our English language. For it to be perfect tense is to communicate an action that takes place in the past but still has present implications. What Martha is saying to Jesus is that there was a time when I believed in you in the past and that belief upon you still has present implications. In other words, I believed and I still believed. It's a call of a continuous trust in Jesus as Christ. Martha is testifying that she believes and she still believes. It's one thing to believe in Jesus when the sun is shining and everything's going your way. It's another thing to believe in Jesus when the bottom of your world drops out, when everything becomes chaotic. It's in this moment that I'm reminded of a quote that I heard this past week from Corey Ten Boom, who said that faith, belief, is trusting an unknown future to a known God. Friend, that's a good word for us today. In the midst of this confusion of a global pandemic, for us to try to figure out how to crack the coronavirus code, uh, when we wonder what is the future going to hold for us, what's going to happen to our employment, what's going to happen in the days and weeks and months ahead, in the midst of all of this uncertainty, it is good for us on this Easter Sunday to declare that we believe in Christ, that we trust an unknown future to a very known God. This is what Martha is declaring. She says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. I think that John places this story here because it fits in nicely to his overall mission statement. The purpose statement of John's gospel is found for us in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Friends, have you ever stopped to think about the, these things that are written about this Jesus in this gospel? In John chapter 1, this Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In John chapter 2, this Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. 
In John chapter 3, this Jesus is approached by a man named Nicodemus under the cover of night, which incidentally is the first Nick at night, and Jesus tells him how to be saved. In John chapter 4, this Jesus, who's an equal opportunity savior, is there at a Samaritan well, and he tells a woman everything about her life and how she too can be saved. Oh, in John chapter 5, it is this Jesus who heals an invalid of some 38 years. In John chapter 6, it is this Jesus who feeds 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. In John chapter 7, it is this Jesus who says, if you believe upon me, streams of living water will well up inside of you. In John chapter 8, it is this Jesus who gives grace to a woman caught in the act of adultery. In John chapter 9, it is this Jesus who heals a man born blind. In John chapter 10, it is this Jesus who declares, I am the gate and I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, it is this Jesus who raises Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 12, it is this Jesus who triumphantly enters Jerusalem for the very last time of his life. In John chapter 13, it is this Jesus who watches the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. In John chapter 14, it is this Jesus who declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 15, it is this Jesus who says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In John chapter 16, this Jesus promised to give all who believe the gift of the Holy Spirit. This Jesus in John chapter 17 is the one who prays for himself, his disciples, and all believers. In John chapter 18, this Jesus is arrested. In John chapter 19, this Jesus is crucified. In John chapter 20, this Jesus is raised from the dead. And in John chapter 21, this Jesus reinstates a wayward apostle named Peter. These things are written about this Jesus so that you may believe he is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you too may have life in his name. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha went back home. She went to her sister Mary and said, the teacher is asking for you. Mary got up quickly when all the Jewish friends and family members who had gathered from Jerusalem saw how quickly she got up and went out. They assumed that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Instead of taking a right and going to the cemetery, she took a left and went to the entrance of the village gate. She too said to Jesus what her sister had spoken. If you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. It's at this portion of the story that everything comes to a screeching halt, the rhythm the cadence, it slows down. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. When you and I get to that verse, we understand it as the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. That word to weep, it, it means to burst into tears. Friend, the sovereign Savior of the universe is moved by your suffering. Don't ever think at any moment that Jesus doesn't care. Do not believe him to be a God who has no compassion. No, Jesus is moved by the suffering of those who follow him. Jesus is moved by your suffering today. In our story, Jesus burst into tears I can well imagine that all the people that gathered 
to help Martha and Mary and to weep with them over the death of their brother Lazarus. Their weeping and wailing was so loud, so much commotion. Eventually, Jesus just simply says, where have you laid him? Scripture says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We read that not once, but twice, that Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now that phrase means that Jesus was angry. It can be understood as perturbed. Jesus is upset. Jesus is frustrated. And you ask yourself as the reader, why is Jesus the one who's upset? I mean, I can understand it if Mary and Martha were deeply moved in spirit and troubled. After all, they did send word to Jesus to have him come and heal their brother when he was just sick, and Jesus did not come. I mean, you can make the argument and build the case that it's Mary and Martha who should be upset and frustrated. You could also make the argument that it's Lazarus who should be perturbed. After all, just a few days ago, he was doing okay. He was just sick needing to be healed. But in our passage, it clearly says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Why is Jesus angry? Many have spilt a great deal of ink trying to answer that question. Some have speculated that the reason Jesus was angry was because he was angry at death, because death had robbed the life of one of his friends. I understand that argument. However, Jesus knows what he's about to do. He came to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is one of the watershed moments of his ministry. Jesus knows why he came to Bethany and what he's about to do in Bethany. Others have said, well, the reason Jesus is so angry is because in Lazarus, Jesus sees foreshadowing of his upcoming death. And I would agree that this story is foreshadowing. The similarities are striking. Lazarus is a life cut short. He's placed into a tomb. The entrance of that tomb has a large stone that's rolled in front of it. It won't be very many weeks later that Jesus will be another example of a life cut short. And Jesus' dead body will be placed into a tomb and a stone will be rolled in front of it. And while I do agree that the story of Lazarus is a story of foreshadowing, I would also like to submit to you that Jesus not only knows what he's about to do for Lazarus, but Jesus knows why he came on earth. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He knew the will of the Father. He knew it from the very beginning of time. And so Jesus is not caught off guard by Calvary. He is not uh, surprised by Golgotha. No, Jesus knows that the way of suffering will be the way of redemption. So I don't think that Jesus is upset because he sees in the life of Lazarus an example of himself. Now, I think if we read the story a little bit closer, we find the answer to our question. Why is Jesus angry? The answer, because there's nobody in this story who believes Jesus can handle the present crisis. There's nobody in the story who thinks that Jesus can handle it. Mary and Martha, they don't think Jesus can handle it. What did they say? They said, if you'd have been here, our brother would not have died. What's the implication? 
Now he's dead. And dead people don't come back to life. There's nothing that could be done now. Even the Jews that gathered, they said, see how he loved him. But some of the others said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? What's the implication? Now that man's dead and there's nothing that can be done about it. There is nobody in our story who actually believes that Jesus can handle the present crisis. And friend, whenever the followers of Jesus, whenever humanity, whenever people believe that they have a problem, a predicament, a prognosis that's outside of the Savior's service area, Jesus becomes deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I want to tell you today that Jesus can handle your present crisis. Jesus can handle your broken marriage. Jesus can handle your unemployment. Jesus can handle your cancer. Jesus can handle your prodigal son. Jesus can handle uh, COVID-19. Jesus can handle anything and everything because nothing is ever outside of the Savior's service area. Don't just take my word for it. But this morning, quickly, let's just have a roll call. It is Joseph who's the first one to speak and Joseph says, my jealous brothers threw me into a pit. But even though I was in that pit, I still was not outside the service area of the Savior. For when my brothers intended for harm, God intended for good. And God lifted me up out of the pit and placed me into the palace. After we hear the story of Joseph, we hear the stories of those three Hebrew brothers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were placed in captivity in Babylon. And even in Babylonian captivity, they still were not outside of the jurisdiction of the Savior. And they said, we will not bow down to this image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has constructed. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious, he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than ever been heated before. And he threw them in. He pulled up a chair to watch them burn. And as he looked through the glass, he saw that there were not three men, but four men, unbound and unharmed. And by his own testimony, King Nebuchadnezzar said, the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Next, I want you to hear Jonah. For Jonah will tell you, I can never outrun or outmaneuver the Messiah. It is Jonah who tried to outrun the Lord, for the Lord told him to go to Nineveh, and Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. He was a powerful prophet, but there was no way he was going to go to the capital of the Assyrian army. So instead, he went down to Joppa to board a boat towards Tarshish in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And God even commanded a fish, a great fish, to come and to swallow Jonah. Jonah was thrown overboard, and this fish was not the demise of Jonah. It was the salvation of Jonah that even in the depths of the Mediterranean Sea, even there, God was in charge. Even there, God was in his own service area. And while he's in the belly of the fish, it is Jonah who says, God, if you get me out of this fish, I promise I'll go to Nineveh. And the Lord, if you'll give me some homiletical license, the Lord said to Jonah, okay, Jonah, I'll let you get out of this fish. And the way I see it, you got one of two exit routes. You can either go north or you can go south. Which one do you want to go? And Jonah must have said, I don't like either option, but north is better than south. So God commanded the great fish to vomit Jonah onto dry ground. As we stop and hear this roll call, as we stop and hear these testimonies of these individuals from the Old Testament, it is obvious and evident that God is never outside of his boundary. 
God is never beyond his jurisdiction. God can always handle any and every present crisis. Jesus walked up to the tomb in our story. He ordered for the stone to be rolled away. It was Martha, dear sweet Martha, who approached Jesus and said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And Jesus said, why? Did I not tell you I'm the resurrection and the life? And she said, the body's been in the tomb for four days. It's beginning to stink. Jesus, don't embarrass yourself. Don't embarrass us. Had you come earlier, you could have fixed it. But now, it's too far gone. My friends, there was a belief in religious folklore of the first century that the spirit of a dead person could hover around a tomb up to but no more than three days. Now keep in mind, that's nowhere taught in the Bible. But you know people who are religious and aren't biblical, right? So in the first century, there was religious folklore. And so what John is telling us, not once but twice, that, that this is beyond all human hope. This is, this is a crisis that is, that is so outrageous. It's so off the charts because Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days now, even beyond the understanding of religious folklore. And by implication, Jesus says to Martha, you know, it doesn't matter if Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days or 4,000 years. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus then peered into death and he said in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I'm glad he specified, aren't you? Because had Jesus, the author of life, not specified and merely peered into death, to say, come out, then all the dead in Christ would have burst forth from the tomb. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, Eve, and Sarah, and Rebecca, Esther, and David, all the dead in Christ would have burst forth from the tomb. But Jesus specifies, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came hopping out of the grave. You say, preacher, how do you know that he's hopping? Because it says that his hands and his feet are bound. And if his hands and his feet are bound, the only way he's coming out is he's got to hop. Jesus says, unbind him, let him go, take off the grave clothes. And as soon as the grave clothes got loose, I suspect that Lazarus did the hallelujah hop. I suspect he did the faith trot. He probably did the messianic mamba. He probably did believer boogie. He probably did the worshipful whipping nene. He probably did a holy TikTok. Jesus got excited because Lazarus got excited. Lazarus said, Jesus has called my name, so I've got to come out. I've got to do the hallelujah hop because on this day, he said, let the dead man live. Take off the grave clothes. Lazarus is now alive. This is a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus. We are told that many Jews came to faith in Christ because of the testimony of Lazarus. But what's Ironic and tragic is that Lazarus was raised only to die again. It was Frank Thielman, a New Testament professor at Beeson Divinity School, who said that because we live in a fallen world, the solving of one problem only produces another problem. Lazarus was raised from the dead only to die again. I told you this story is a foreshadowing of Jesus. 
And certainly Jesus went to a criminal cross. He was executed, crucified. He was placed into a grave and a large stone was rolled in front of it. But one thing that is different about the life and death of Jesus is that Jesus was raised from the dead never to taste death again. Jesus died once and for all. Jesus died for you and for me. Jesus died for all believers so that we might live. Jesus died and on the third day, early on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday, glorious resurrection day, it is Jesus who got up out of the tomb. And this morning, I just came to remind you that I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks to me a long life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because, just because, just because he lives. Jesus declares emphatically and dramatically, I am resurrection and I am the life. And friend, this resurrection and life that's bound and found in Jesus can be given to you today. If you don't have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, today can be the day of your salvation. All you have to do is stop where you are and pray to the Lord, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus, the perfect son of God, came and died on the cross for my mistakes. And even though Jesus was dead, on the third day I believe that he was raised from the dead. The Bible says that anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And maybe on this Easter Sunday, you simply need to call on Christ. If you do, then know, according to the scripture, that you go from no faith to faith. You go from death unto life. If you're listening to my voice and, and you personally know Jesus as your resurrection and your life, then today you know that whatever befalls you, whatever experiences you have, your life is secure in Christ. Why? Because Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we thank you for this Easter Sunday. We thank you for the life that we have in Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.